0: Hey, podcast listeners, this is Todd Finley, the founder of HBCU Grad. Today on the podcast, we have a really, really good guest, Tiffany Green, and she is the first black woman to serve as a play-by-play commentator for college football on a major network. Um, She's an AKA, she went to FAMU, she has a bachelor's in broadcast journalism, but our conversation was really wide ranging. She's extremely articulate, a uh, great storyteller. I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Hope you like it.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be on and I love all the highlights, but fam, you baby coming through. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Sorry, I'm hype about FAMU. I'm always be that way. So just be prepared. A Listeners, be ready.
0: <laughs> FAMU is a, a great place. Now I want to jump right into it. How were you as a child?
1: Oh, I would say uh, a tomboy for sure. I love that question, okay. BTW. Uh, very competitive. A little yeah. rebellious at the same time. But I was a sweet kid. And as my parents always remind me that through it all, I found a way to still listen to what they had to say. Right.
0: Now, being competitive, were you competitive with other people or were you more competitive with
1: yourself trying to be better? Everybody. So when I looked myself in the mirror, I was competitive. If you were standing next to me, I was trying to beat you. Literally it did not matter. (laughs) I was trying to win at all costs. So like um, I used to play throw up tackle at the boys and girls club and they'd be like, Oh man, look at this girl. She can run, she can run. And I was just trying to be out there with the guys playing, showing that, you know, I had skills to video games, same thing. Um, it, It just, it really, I would, try to find competitions and create competitions if i had to like if we were playing hands down connect to five in the car i wanted to win that too
0: right so (laughs) so to this day if you're playing connect four you want to win
1: yeah i do now i've had to back up off of that a little bit because life has taught me that i probably should ease up In certain instances. So quick story, uh, my husband and I, we went to family together. I went to college on a bowling scholarship and we went to a bowling alley one night. It was a date night. We were engaged at the time. And he was just like, you know what? I really don't want to go bowling because I know you can bowl. And I was just like, yeah, but I kind of do. And like, why don't we do this? He's competitive, too. And so we got out there and I whooped his butt. Ooh, it was a shellacking For real, for real. So much so that he didn't talk to me for like the next three days. Wow. Like wow. <laughs> it yeah. was really it was so
0: Now, how are you
1: after you win or you lose? Are you a poor sport? No, I'm not. Because I'm not like a great trash talker to begin with. Okay. So okay. like I just want them to be like, dang. Dang, <laughs> you beat me. Okay, another case in point. Moms and I, we play bid whist and playing uh, my uncle and my mother in law in cards. And it was Christmas, probably two years ago. My mom is a much better prissy, prim, proper kind of woman, and and she'll slyly talk some trash to you. Uh-oh. And we ran a boss. We. Now she did all the trash talking for me. And every time I see my uncle, I'm just like, You want a rematch? I don't think you want none. Those <laughs>
0: things, the people that don't talk and then they kind of slide it in there a little yeah. bit, those, those kind of bit.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Cool. <laughs> now who, oh, now, who introduced no. you to sports?
1: You know, television, I would honestly say. I know that sounds really generic, but there was nobody in my family that necessarily played ball at like an exceptionally high level i think my grandfather played baseball but you know that was before my time um my dad six foot four didn't use his height my sister about five didn't use her height and like i said i had the queen of the south Mm -hmm. and my mom so she wasn't touching anything that was outside dirty ball nothing like that um so I just watched television a lot, and then when you become involved in, like, the Boys and Girls Club was a great avenue for me to kind of run it out, play it out, um, so there I kind of, guess, joined my first set of teams, and then preschool, too, was, a, was another spot where I was the little girl who liked basketball, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would set up, like, the egg carton uh, crate. And boom, watch her play, man. Watch her right. go. So,
0: so so, you were kind of yeah. talented at a young age. So it, it kind of made sense to gravitate to something you were good at, you think?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I and, and it just naturally piqued my interest. Like I, for as much as I love competition, I also really appreciate the team element, right? So being able to work as hard as you can to be your best and be disciplined and, you know, work on your skill or craft but at the same time you're uniting with other people and I draw energy off of others I'm an extrovert so I love being able to to join forces um that so that we can bring out the best in each other and go farther than where I would go individually
0: now what teams are you a fan of like your,
1: (laughs) honestly my favorite team Chicago Cubs. That's my only true favorite team that I have rocked with since I was just like mm, seven or eight years old. And I became a Cubs fan because WGN was a superstation. So you had a chance to either see the Sox, the Cubs, or TBS had the Braves. That was a superstation as well. And I gravitated towards the Cubs announcers. So it was Steve Stone uh, and Harry Carey. And Harry Carey, I mean, who wouldn't draw you in? Like that, that guy was amazing. Uh, so he, because he, he was just truly himself, but he was, he made me want to watch each time. So I became right. a Cubs fan.
0: Did you see the spot that uh, Budweiser did after the Cubs won the World Series and they brought those old mm-hmm. Harry Carey clips back out? Did you see that spot? Yeah.
1: Oh, no. That was, that that was beautiful. That was beautiful. That was absolutely – you pay homage to, you know, one of the great broadcasters in my eyes just because he was such a unique and individual talent. And, like, don't think for a second I still don't drum up memories of – I got a Cubs hat in the back <laughs> of my car. And when I'm watching baseball, if it's boring, I'll be like, I don't want it. I too. i Take me out to the ball game. Like, You're Seriously. Right. I love that, dude. Um, got to see a Cubs game in person once in May. It was freezing cold. My family was there. We went up there for um class reunion for my mm-hmm. grandmother. Man, I, that was one of the, the happiest days of my life. I cried when he did the seventh inning wow. stretch. Like, wow, I love the Cubs. Awesome. That's awesome.
0: So why did yeah. you choose FAMU?
1: There was no choice. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, real talk. I'm a fourth generation wow. Rattler. So, my great grandmother, uh, Mary Elizabeth Thomas, graduated in 19- 1908. Uh, her cousin, Maud Wynn, graduated in 1909. And from that point forward, uh, my grandmothers on both sides, as well as my uh, parents, sister, aunts, uncles, cousins, you name it, uh, we've been embedded and entrenched at Florida A&M University for as long as I can remember. And there was a time where I was going to be rebellious, right? So I did have some other cousins that attended uh, Hampton and Howard. And so I thought I'd take a look and Howard kind of stood out to me. So I was like, I'm going to be rebellious, right? I'm I'm going to, I'm going to go to Howard. And I felt like it was a Cosby show moment. When my parents were like, you can go to Howard (laughs) if you get a scholarship, but my child and my money are going to FAMU. And it was just like, oh, Um, and finally I came around to my senses because I found that it was more, it was, it was a better look if I went. I was a bright future scholar. Um, I would have a car by my sophomore year. And then the scholarship also helped to add to that. So, like, I got a fat net check. I was like, this this would, this would, could work out to be s- pretty right. smooth. Uh, and it was the best decision I ever made. And it was always going to be the decision I was likely going to make. But, you know, I had to be a contrarian right. for a moment. Right.
0: Now, what, what makes you say it was the best decision you ever made?
1: Oh, I mean, well, first of all, I think... That pride was instilled in me from the time I came out my parents' womb. They met at Florida A&M University. We always made sure to go back. And it wasn't just go back to just be seen. It was go back and give back. And whether that was in Tallahassee or in Tampa or connecting with folks wherever we were, I saw from an early age the network um, that was established based on the affiliation with FAMU. I think next to that, I got a first-class education. The School of Journalism and Graphic Communication, it was media arts at the time, was phenomenal. Okay, had a wonderful dean and the late Dr. James Hawkins. Uh, My professors just pushed me and truly prepared me for everything that I faced in the newsroom outside of office politics and how to deal with that. So I think those two things were uh, among the utmost importance. And then the gravy on top, the nice icing with the cherry, was the fact that these lifelong relationships were built there. And you got to walk side by side daily with some of the most outstanding individuals, bright minds uh, across the country. So those relationships and bonds helped me to Meet my husband, my, my, my life partner, the greatest person that I could ever be connected with and produce a, a future Rattler and our two-and-a-half-year-old son. My best friends are from right there at FAMU. Um, I mean, and you could just go on and on. But that sense of community, family, and belonging um, is, is, is unlike any other that I've ever seen. You're a
0: part of the um, FAMU freshman class of 1999 that just celebrated its 20th uh, anniversary
1: uh,
0: at homecoming. And they did it by presenting the biggest check by class ever, which was $190,000 at the time. But now it's grown to over $204,000. What can you tell us and any other class that's trying to raise money that you guys did so special that can help them and help
1: other classes in raising money? Well, first, I think it's good to put everybody on notice that we're all the way live, right? So we've been taking over since the nine, nine, that was our hashtag and the best class to ever do it. I really believe that because there was so much talent that came out of there and to do it in one year's time, I think is equally pretty impressive. But what it does is it helps to set the tone, set the tone for other classes to follow suit. And yes, we want to take this moment to gloat and get our, you know, few minutes of fame and shine and, and celebrate what we did. But we also want other classes to meet or exceed what we did because it's supposed to catch fire. You know, we're not just supposed to be out there all on our lonesome and saying, Hey, look at us. We did this. This is supposed to set. Special, not only at Florida A&M university, but all HBCUs. You hear the knock normally of HBCU, alumni not giving back or having need. And this is an answer to that call to say, oh, we do step up. Oh, we do meet that need. And we do care about our university more than just going there for homecoming or graduation or, uh, you know, something in the recruiting space. So I think this is what we need, and if we are the impetus for something great, then I'm a, that, I'm, I'm beyond awesome. proud to say that I was
0: now, a part of it. going forward a little bit, what was your first job out of college?
1: First job out of college, I was selling cars and trucks, okay. Dodge, Ram with Hemi's. <laughs> 325 torque, 345 horsepower uh, in Brandon, Florida, which is, um, if you're familiar with the Tampa Bay area at the intersection of I-4 and I-75, there's a Confederate flag that flies high. Um, so that's kind of the area that I was selling cars and trucks in, but I okay. had always wanted to be a car salesperson. I just was always fascinated with cars, so I did that, and I did that. While also applying for a part time production assistant job at a startup station, which was known as WB 38 at the time. Um, and so I did those simultaneously for the summer. So and someone's then going to buy Continued a car. on with the TV station.
0: When is the best time to buy a car and what different mm-hmm. tactics can they do to get the best deal?
1: Usually around um, September. September you know just early fall because now they're starting to September October because now they're starting to introduce their new line right so you can buy a 2019 now because the 2020s are already starting to hit the lot and then usually year end deals are are great as well because they're trying to push at that point end of the month are also great because people are trying to hit their numbers right so if i have a sales goal of of selling you know, 20 cars, and right now I'm at 12, uh, I'm anxious to make a deal. I think when you are a car salesperson, you know, among the things that they're curious to know is, you know, what's most important to you. So is it monthly payment that's driving you? Is it bottom line that you're financing that's important to you? Um, and, And I think it's changed too a lot because with, the development and and just the advent of social me- not social media excuse me the internet and all that good stuff it's changed the game of how you buy a car you could do so much more research now you can compare uh there's so many sites that have so many different offerings that no longer is that you go up there you go face to face and you try to like haggle a lot of places now just say this is what our price is. This is the no haggle price. Okay. So okay. I think it's a lot different so me than it used to be.
0: From selling cars in a place that has a Confederate flag flying to <laughs> being the first black woman to serve as a play-by-play commentator for college football on a major network.
1: Yeah, so I would say it was in that time uh, we'll pick up from from that point on, WB38, that production assistant job. I was trying to do everything, right? So my foot was in the door in my eyes. Even though I was a audio operator, a floor director, an editor, I was volunteering to literally do anything. So if I could go out and shoot high school football on a Friday night, and come back cut highlights and write a shot sheet for the anchors I did that if that meant taking a press release off the printer and saying I'll go cover this story and I'll write up a package edit it voice it and then you the anchor voice it as well so that I could have something for my reel and you can have something for the newscast I did that it was all about enterprising but also taking initiative that I think helped to set me apart early on, or at least I'd like to believe that. So six months after that part-time production assistant job, I had uh, an opportunity to go to Savannah, Georgia and become a a one-man band, what we now know as a multimedia journalist who writes, edits, shoots, reports. Mm -hmm. And I had technical difficulties, but off the strength of my relationship with uh, my friend, I still was able to get that that interview. Sat down told told the news director, "Hey, look, I love sports. That's where my heart and passion is. I want to do sports." And he said, "Well, you know what? This is a general assignment news reporter position. <laughs> you can perhaps do some sports, but you're going to be covering news." And so I took it because I still felt like it was a, a great chance for me to. Uh, get on-air experience and my probation while I went to when I went to Savannah Mm -hmm. three months of being a photographer for other reporters and I was just like (laughs) (laughs) I mean kind of humbling because you know you think to yourself I'm ready to do this I know I can do this and you're telling me to shoot I mean I was running a live truck, you know, with the satellite, putting up the mask. I was certified operator and I was doing live shots for other people, but I just had to wait my turn. And it was one faithful morning at 4 a.m. I had to cover a drug bus in Guyton, Georgia. And I said, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do this. So I'm riding through, you know, South Georgia at about 2:30 a.m. by myself, ready to go to this drug bus. So it was really anticlimactic overall. (laughs) But when I got back to the station, I had blue video. I was like, oh, no, this is like the worst thing ever. It's like photography one-on-one, white balance. I had not white balanced. Um, So but those those were just nice little lessons early on to remind me that, you know, yes, you're ready, but you're still going to have bumps and challenges along the way it's how you respond and and from that point forward i think i became a a valuable asset in our reporting division at the station so three and a half years there in addition to my time at a uh competitor in the market as a sports photographer reporter then i got the jump to go to orlando with central florida news 13 as a feature reporter so again i'm like Yo, I want to do sports. I have mm-hmm. made it clear to everybody. But these opportunities that present themselves are in news. What's the deal? And, and what I tell students now is if you can report, you can report, right? And so news and sport, you're, you're doing the same process, um, covering shootings, deployments, house fires, city commission meetings, a little different but not too far out of the scope of what you're used to doing with press conferences, or if a player passes away from a heat stroke or, you know, so those elements all kind of intertwine. And I think my time in Orlando, Florida was the greatest blessing for me in my career because it not only helped me professionally, but also personally, I got to move back um, to my mom's hometown. My grandmother lived there Um, She had some health challenges and so it was really important for me to be there with her and for her, there with her, excuse me, and for her. And um, at that time, the television station I was working at then decided to start up a 24 hour sports network. Mm. So it was called Bright House Sports Network and then I got a chance to do everything, right? So I could anchor, host, report, play by play produced everything you could possibly think of. And it was there where I really sharpened my skills. I think I proved myself. I covered the Gators during their national championship season, driving back and forth to Gainesville, um, covering the Orlando Magic when they went to the NBA finals, high school football. And then we began to carry the state championships. So I was a sideline reporter and we did all state championships in sports. So that's where I got to really cut my teeth doing play by play. For basketball, softball, volleyball, and much of what I do today, I started there. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the just being at the right place, right time, and, and and God really kind of opening doors and ordering steps. And sorry for the long winded answer, but a little bit more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, um. But yeah, I I don't want to I don't want to go on, but. The, the bottom line was started doing some freelance work with ESPN and those doors were open because of the ESPN wide water sports at Disney. And, um, from there I became full-time in 2015 to do you know, the sports that you mentioned collegiately.
0: You know, one of my, I always look for common threads in how certain people get to certain levels and the one common thread and something that I'm really hot on that I talk to people about is working for free. Anybody Mm -hmm. that I know that has made it to a certain level that has a certain level of talent, they have worked for free in some
1: capacity. How do you Mm -hmm. feel about that? Oh, I think you should work for free and volunteer. Like, so when I wasn't on the clock at work, and I know it's sometimes a conflict of interest because if you are, under the guise of your company or taking, you know, their equipment, then you have to be clocked in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now we have so much more that we can use at our disposal, including our phones that, yeah, you take every opportunity that you're given and you create your own opportunities. If you have to, Mm -hmm. to work for free, to volunteer, to shadow, to do, whatever was necessary. So even on off weekends when I wasn't there, if there was big media in town or a big game was being covered, I was right there too. Like Mm -hmm. just trying to figure out and understand the process because I think that's one of the like biggest wake up calls is when you get to that place that you're looking to be and then you're like, whoa, like how does this work? And then you're kind of like in awe too, right? So you're trying to take this all in and your senses are like overload how do you walk in there with an expectation like i know what to expect and i know what i'm doing uh and i belong here and i think being in those environments in any way that you can be um helps you and prepares you for it right were you aware that there weren't any black
0: play-by-play commentators black females in the, uh,
1: um, I think I was I know I searched right so I remember Robin Roberts she's my unicorn and I knew that she did women's college basketball and I would watch her do that on ESPN I saw maybe one other woman here or there but it wasn't anything consistent or um, at a national level or something more high profile. So I started to kind of find my niche because I thought a lot of people were going into um, sideline reporting. And I wanted to do the same, right? Watch Pam Oliver on the sideline, Michelle Tafoya, another great one. And I was just like, man, I want to do that, too. And it's, it's visible. But what I learned that I enjoyed just as much, if not more, is being able to call the game and being in control of the game and being the voice and the soundtrack of what's happening before your eyes. Right. So um, I tried to search out to see if there were other any other Black women um, in the play-by-play space. And they may have done so on a regional level or for their school, but not nationwide. Um, So I was honored. And I think ESPN too saw that as an opportunity. I was with Fox Sports 1 first. They actually gave me the larger national platform. I did Big East Women's College basketball, the inaugural season, and thereafter for Fox Sports 1. And then ESPN said, okay, well, she can hang on that level, I think. And I think she would be... Uh, a great addition to our team, so they had me come on, and then they let me, and they had obviously the the, the bandwidth to allow me to do volleyball and basketball and softball and football. Right.
0: How do you plan for 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 uh, broadcast? Like, what do you what do you go through? Do is it one of those where you're always watching sports, so you're always ready, or do you really plan where you are watching old games of the teams that are about to play do real research walk me through how you plan for your broadcast outside of what you guys do as a team.
1: Right. Yeah, I think um what people don't see is the you know 4 to 5 hours a day that we put in studying whether it's film watching old games like you mentioned, reading game notes, um trying to find newspaper articles, talking to coaches and players. Um, whatever it is that you can kind of just catch up on throughout the week. I think that's most helpful. I'm a crammer. So I do better kind of like maybe getting highlights throughout the week, but then really cramming in the last, you know, few days that helps me remember better. And by the time that you get to the game, you know, you're already then talking about it with your analyst and your producer So that's a natural kind of conversation anyway. Um, And I think too, I'm a night person. So I will literally play out what I want to say sometimes, how I want to say it. If something inspires me to say, oh, maybe I'll come at it from this way. Or this sounds like something that could be clever that's said in game. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just jot it down in my notes um, so I can go back and, and remember it. And I think you learn, too, a lot from watching other people. So everybody has a different style, a different flow. You know, people would watch Gus Johnson and be like, I have to watch that game because it sounds like it's the most exciting thing that's happening. Right. And Joe Tessator kind of has that feel. Adam Amin also really good at that as well. And then you have folks who are the opposite. Right. Sean McDonough. Mm-hmm has been doing it for a long time and and he's just a little bit more steady and even keel, dry sense of humor. Um, So you try to learn from a little bit about what everybody does. And um, it's not that you're trying to copy, but you're trying to understand the traffic of how they're getting in and out of breaks or replays or how do they deal with the situation when a player is down or multiple penalties or something happens on the field and until you experience it sometimes you don't know what to do so when you watch other people who do it you're like oh okay I remember such and such because I think one of those things where I remember a producer said to me there was a bad injury in a basketball game I think it was Alabama at South Carolina no, Alabama and Mississippi state, and the hump Humphrey Coliseum is always rocking, and then it goes dead silent and what you have a tendency to do when it's so quiet and eight, thousand ears are listening in mm-hmm. is whisper too right yeah. and what you have to do is remember that you are broadcasting you know to the world, so you need to keep your level up explain what you're seeing you don't want to speculate but you want to say you know hush is falling over the crowd and you know just really be as descriptive as possible to help fill that airspace right
0: right i I love getting into the nuances of of different crafts like when you talk about Mm -hmm. getting in and out of breaks and things like that that's you know that's not something that the guys sitting at home talk about saying, hey, I wish I could get paid for uh, just talking about sports. You know, it's much bigger than that. What do you say to people who <laughs> say it, it must be nice to just be able to talk about
1: the game that you paid? Well, I'm not going to lie. It is, <laughs> it is nice. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to run away from that at all. Um, I think it's more than just – Going there and saying, well, I'm going to show up to the game and I have a lot of knowledge on the sport. So, you know, I'm just going to free lo- freestyle and freelance. I mean, there is a lot of preparation. If I am not prepared for what I'm doing, you can only freelance so much and you're, you're only going to get so far. Right. Um, but yes, we live a dream job. All right. I am not out here trying to figure out how to cure a disease not trying to, you know, um, understand or or know how to protect our nation or, uh, educate our youth, right. Those, those things to me are challenging, right. They're hard and they take a certain skill set. but this is no different. And so, um, yeah, I'm just blessed to, to be able to do it. Right.
0: While I have you on, I want to ask you about Hubie Brown because Hubie Brown is my favorite commentator, and I'm a basketball player at heart, and every time mm-hmm. I listen to him call a game, I learn something. Where do you hold Hubie Brown as far as
1: uh, commentators in, in the game? Um, I think Hubie Brown has been doing it for a long time, so obviously... A lot of people like what he's doing. And he's a well-respected voice and a great basketball mm-hmm. mind. Um, so, you know, I enjoy his commentary and his analysis. Um, I was saying earlier, I too enjoy Chris okay. Weber. I think uh, he brings a nice flair and flavor to the game, but, you know, sees it well as also. So what's,
0: what's your personal brand strategy? Because I've been seeing a lot of different personalities uh, from the Stephen A's to the Jamel Hill's to the Michael Smith's taking different uh, approaches to building their personal brand outside of ESPN. How do you, how do you view that?
1: Uh, I try to pay someone to help me figure that out <laughs> <laughs> because um, I, you know what I'm, I really just, genuinely am enjoying what i'm doing i am living my dream each day and i think i had to expand my mind a little bit more as to saying hey you know you have a lot to offer not that i didn't feel that before but there is more open space for you to just kind of roam and create and be who it is you want to be so i think the creation of our gimme five black college live show is a, a great place to start because i'm obviously passionate about hbcus being a graduate myself and then you couple that with the sport of football so in my wheelhouse altogether, and you get a chance to highlight and give some some love to the historically black colleges and universities the coaches an avenue for the bands to you know show what they do greek life as well just Campus life in general. Um, so, I love the Black College Live space because I think it's starting to round out what I do. My heart is to serve, to give back, and to be a vehicle or conduit for other people to launch their hopes and dreams, right? So, I try to be really thoughtful and purposeful with what I do, and I don't try to overextend myself and what it is. Um, So, I know that I have a young son. I know that I'm on the road a lot. Black College Live is a piece of it. My ESPN job is another part. I just started my partnership with the Boys and Girls Club, as I am a club Mm -hmm. alumni. Um, And so, working with young people, in addition to, you know, AKA, and the Lynx Incorporated, and National Association of Black Journalists, and sitting on the Board of Visitors for the School of Journalism and Graphic Communication. I mean, those are the things that I, I am most passionate about and that's where i try to spend my time well, we go. you ask great questions by the way thank you because i've not nice. been asked some of the questions oh, that you cool. have you. posed mm-hmm. that
0: means a lot coming from you <laughs> yeah no right cool. so if someone wants to get in the in the industry what would you suggest them do or and what are you looking at are you looking at if somebody has a certain level of talent then you can kind of kind of push them to get to a level or is it someone that doesn't have any talent they can just go strictly off of hard work and make it to a certain level
1: i think it has to be a combination of both if i'm honest honest. and you need to have a desire a passion a want to to do it because this business is not easy and you will be told no a number of times and people will um, talk about the way your hair looks or how you sound or talk or write it's a very subjective business so you need thick skin um, those are things that yes you can kind of build in time but you have to at least know it going in and being upfront with that um, and I think you do need a, a certain level of skill and talent, right? There's a connectivity that you have to have with your audience and being able to accurately and adequately express whatever that story is and maybe shrink it down into a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. How can you succinctly tell this story? That's what I'm looking for. An eagerness, right? A willingness to be Uh, assertive, Mm -hmm. putting yourself in positions where, or what I'm saying, putting yourself in positions where they're uncomfortable, like moving to Paducah, Kentucky, or somewhere in Wyoming, or Beaumont, Texas, for an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first thing that I did was I would research news stations, right? So I would go online and literally look at the talent that they had there, and I would read their bios, and whoever I thought I connected with I wrote down their names. I sent an email and I found whatever connection point I could. If we were from the same city, we went to the same school. We liked the same sport and team, uh, whatever it was, I was trying to find that connection point sorority, all that good stuff. Secondly, I would, um, anytime I was in a city, I would just reach out to the news director or that said, person that I found on the website. Just to say, hey, I'm in town. Do you mind showing me around? Or even if we can have a conversation about the newsroom culture and what it's like for you day to day. So it gives me a better understanding. National Association of Black Journalists was one of the more crucial points to me of, of my success. And NABJ is a wonderful organization that's been around for more than three decades that's helped journalists of color, African-Americans specifically um, get connected, stay connected and find opportunities. So when you go to a conference or when you're at a short course, the idea is everyone there wants to make you better. And when you can, Dap up and be cool with the people that you see on TV or the you because now you're in a familiar setting. You're showing off your work. You're getting access to those people. Um, NABJ is one of the things that I make sure that I talk to every mentee about. Join the National Association of Black Journalists. Go to the yearly conventions. Make your network opportunities count while you're there showcase your talents uh all of those things you know I'm, I'm i'm looking for and if you can follow through with them that's just as important as all the other stuff i just said right right
0: well thank you tiffany you've you've done a really good job and and told us your journey we're extremely open um uh very articulate you know, just just really, really good. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask
1: you? Oh, that's a good one. Putting it back on me. Um, <laughs> would I would say, you know, where's your source of help, inspiration come mm-hmm. from? And how are you able to do it? <laughs> and I, I think the obvious answer for me is through Christ, right, who strengthens me, uh, but also my family. And they are the greatest support system, village, unit, ride or die team that I could ever ask for. I'm on the road just about 35, you know, weeks out of the year. And if it weren't for them, then I don't think I would be doing it at this level with a a two-and-a-half-year-old son. So I just want to say thank you to my husband Aaron Barry, to my parents and my in-laws um, for helping us to raise our son and allowing me to live my dream. Because a lot of women want to know, well, how, how are you able to do that? Like how, how is that possible? And um, you know that's, a, that's a, a whole nother conversation in itself <laughs> because it, it, it truly is a team. Mm-hmm um and it goes back to the, the very you know start of the podcast of what's most important to me and its team and literally all hands are on deck to to make uh sure that I'm able to fulfill this dream
0: that's a beautiful thing where can where can people find you online
1: okay so <laughs> um at tiffany a green g r e e n e that's twitter mm-hmm. and you can also follow us on b l k short for black college live b l k college live um that's on twitter as well or you can just follow black college live on instagram and facebook
0: youtube what ifs you did it you did a great job on that espn special as well oh thank
1: you thank you i appreciate that i was honored to be a part of that
0: Thanks again, Tiffany. I know you got to go and you know, I know you're busy. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us and have a good day.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. That was really good. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I would really appreciate if you rated the podcast and shared the podcast. That would really help us out a lot. Also, Uh, Follow us on YouTube, where we post about one or two videos a day on YouTube, long form. So just look up HBCU grad on YouTube. Also follow us on TikTok. We're getting real creative and doing some new things on, on TikTok. Our username is HBCU grads. Hope you have a good day.